We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Joyce Rupp is well known for her work as a writer, international retreat leader, and conference speaker. She's the author of numerous best-selling books, including Praying Our Goodbyes, Open the Door, and Fragments of Your Ancient Name. Her most recent book, Return to the Root, Reflections on the Inner Life, is a compilation of her monthly newsletter reflections expanded upon with prayers, poems, and a constant reminder of what keeps us rooted so that we can feel at peace no matter the events of the world around us. Joyce, welcome to the podcast. Hello, and thank you for having me, and especially on this topic that's so dear to my heart. Just so mm. pleased to be with you. So, so glad you could join us. We, we love beginning the conversation by asking you about your relationship with silence. Mm. Um, perhaps there's been a special or particular time in your life where you've had a meaningful encounter. You know, I, I, by nature, I'm a contemplative person and uh, by my temperament, I guess I should say. And, you know, I grew up, uh, I have rural upbringing. And so I spend a lot of time in the garden by myself many times. And, and I actually am one of those crazy people that enjoy weeding and all that. And I love to plant and bring in the harvest. And then when I was about 10 years old, I started driving the tractor for baling hay. And of course we didn't have radios in those days and didn't have an iPhone with me. And so I was just with myself in that little tractor and guys were in the back getting bales in. And, and, you know, then I, and I would play it in the grove of trees. Trees are just really dear to me in terms of silence and solitude. Um, and then about, um, about 25 years ago, I read an article that said, you know, really you ought to spend an hour every day in nature in order to have a healthy balance to your life or your spiritual life. So I made a decision that I would walk an hour every day. And that's about three miles for me usually a little over three miles, but anyway, so I started doing that. And so about 25 years ago, I, I just remember I was doing a lot of traveling then I was coming back from Boston, I think it was. And the next morning I got up really early and I thought I'll go for my walk now. And it was just pre-dawn and I was out, I'll never forget this. I was out walking and I was walking just a little incline on a street and there it was a very wooded area. And I looked up and it was like the moon, the full moon was sitting on the earth in front of me and that on that street. And in that moment, I didn't hear anything. I didn't think anything. I just was totally absorbed in this silence. And it was even now when I, I, I mean, I can just picture that so clearly and how I felt, but there's no sound to it at all. And uh, what I recall most of all in that moment is that I just felt such great peace I thought I could die right now and it would just be perfectly fine you know and and that was probably my greatest experience of, of silence I've had a lot of experiences of a variety of si times of silence but that's the one that always comes back to me and and it really roots me or grounds me in 
in the reality of what can be, I guess, in the really, really deep, profound silence. So I just love that that you committed to to this walking and and I'm wondering too if if the practice has become not just a you know a physical practice but it sounds like also a spiritual practice for you the the walking and do you typically walk in silence oh I do you know about not even once a week but I have I have a few friends that love to walk but I'm real careful about how often we walk together because they're very chatty (laughs) and and I love to walk alone and you're right you're so right Cassidy that I I find some of my best silence times and reflection times when I'm walking and I I lately what I I just call it contemplative pauses but because I walk I walk pretty fast and I just stop and um, I will just be with what's around me and in me and and it actually becomes a, a, a kind of well it is like a prayer I mean the whole part of my walk seems like prayer but I've gotten to uh, thank the I, I pause and I thank the trees, um, the creatures, the earth I'm walking upon, uh, the air I'm breathing, the sunlight, you know, or if it's darkness, the darkness. And I just stand there and I, I'm so one with cosmos at that time and, and very intentionally about trying to be present to this sacredness that, that's a part of me. And then I just continue on my walk again. Um, and I also, I thank my body for knowing what it's supposed to do, especially at my age, you know, <laughs> and, and, and so it, it's just, it's really a walk of gratitude a lot of times, but then I kind of let my mind go. And it's, I always say, it's kind of like taking a dog for a walk off the leash, you know, it's just have all these thoughts, but I get some of my best ideas for writing, you know, when I'm walking and I think, Whoa, I'm glad that one came in there, you know, so. And that can ruminate a bit too during that time. So, Joyce, you sound like a Franciscan. I, I <laughs> don't know what what your uh, religious order is, but um, you had that Franciscan vibe about you. Yeah, thank you. You know, I'm a servite, servant of Mary, and our our background history is also mendicant, which is the Franciscan. Um, that I think I could easily be a Franciscan. Thank, yeah, <laughs> it must be part of my rootedness. <laughs> So um, I'm curious about how you bring this, you, you mentioned having ideas mm-hmm. uh, during, during your walking time, uh, how you bring both the silence and the ideas then back into your experience as a writer. How is silence part of your writing journey? Uh, gosh, you know, Carl, I can't, I can't imagine not having I don't, I can't imagine writing without silence, I guess. You know, when I wrote my book, Fragments of Your Ancient Name, I mean, I spent years collecting 365 names for the sacred. And then I wanted to write about each one of those, one for each day. So I always say, you know, books have a life of, and a mind of their own. Start out thinking one thing and they end up being another. So I thought what I would do is I'd write a little short essay for each of those names. So the, I started the first couple of weeks and, and that's what I was, and I always did it after my morning, my spiritual practice time, my meditation, my reading, my journaling. And I realized after a couple of weeks that that little essay thing wasn't working. And what I really needed to do was address this sacred presence with the name that was there. And so it ended up being like the six line prayer that I had. 
And I remember when I, I got back the galley sheets, you know, for, from the editor, and I was reading some of those prayers, and I thought, I do not remember writing those. She must have gone in there and really worked them over, <laughs> but no, they were mine. <laughs> and, and, and I think that's the wonder of silence, because I think it, for me, um, I really reach, I really reach into that deeper part of myself that I don't even know is there until the silence helps me to open it. And, and so that's how I do most of my writing. When I'm starting a book, I have to go away to a cabin or someplace where I'm not going to have any of my office stuff around, uh, not going to have people around to expect me to have conversations with them. And that's how I get started. And then when I, I'm back home, I have to be in my own prayer space for a lot of my writing. It's, it's just um, that silence really helps me a lot. And so that's, that's basically what I've done. You know, the last, let's see, last January, this past January, I, uh, I spent two weeks in a winter cabin in solitude and, and worked on a book. And I was really, I was really, I've never been concerned before about doing that, but I've always gone in the summertime and this was going to be in the winter and in J Iowa, it's pretty cold in January. Some days it was like, you know, 14 below. And I thought, gee, can I do that? So one day I was, I was having coffee with a friend and I, I said to him, you know, I, I don't know if I could do this or not. What if I, what if the darkness, what if I get really kind of depressed and I get a writer's block? And he looked at me and he said, just do it. And, and that was the best thing, you know, I just, yeah, face that crazy fear. And, and, and I tell you, I love every day. In fact, I would get up in the morning and I would say, I love being here. And I'd say it out loud every day. I love being here. And, and what I, what I did, and again, this is just movement and spirit because uh, the first day I was there, I thought, you know, I'm going to get up every morning at five 30 and sunrise wasn't until about seven 30. And I'd, I'd make myself a cup of coffee and I'd sit by the patio doors and they looked out onto the woods and the lake beyond and I just sat there. I just sat there the whole time until the sun was rising. And, and then I would, I would get dressed, have breakfast, and then I would write for the day. And it was such a preparation for my spirit. Um, I just, I just love that time. And I do, I do take time every day here in my own um, place where I live for about an hour and a half every morning for my um, meditation, journaling, some reading, just um, getting my inner being ready for the day. But that that time was really special. And, uh, you know, I, I'm one of these crazy people. I love winter. And everybody goes, you, you're kidding. But I, I love it for the darkness. Darkness is yin time for me. And I don't write as well in the summertime. The yang, that sunlight so bright and calling me out and and so winter, winter is my writing time, my best writing time. So that's a long response. <laughs> I think that harkens back to kind of traditional agricultural rhythms. You know, you think about the monastic writers of old, Bernard of Clairvaux or, you know, William of St. Thierry or those kinds of people. That's what they would do. They would work the land during the farming season mm -hmm. and then they would write during the winter months. Oh, that's so, so neat. I've never thought about that. How neat. Yeah, oh, now I'm yeah. going to carry that with me. That's good. So, yeah. yes. You know, what I, what I uh, love about your responses to uh, Cassidy's question and then, and then Carl's uh, is 
Well, first off, you know, I, I'm so glad you're here because you're this great guest who you're hitting our greatest hits. You're saying everything from trees to nature to silence to writing. I mean, these are the things that we we hang around in these circles. But what I what I hear, not only the agricultural, but this really profound freedom, which strikes me. I, I It struck me, too, when I, I read your um, most recent book, Return to the Root. The absolute utter freedom you have with metaphor and language that you do not feel trapped in a box to talk about either the divine or the psychological or the spiritual in any particular set terms. So, for instance, like on one page, and you just did it now in your answer, you'll you'll throw out yin-yang. And then another page, you're citing a Muslim imam, or you're citing a Quaker, or you're citing a Catholic saint, or you're citing uh, bell hooks, or you're citing, you know, you just, the whole spectrum of the human experience and those languages, you just seem to, and, and it doesn't, I think the reason I'm bringing this up is for some people in some books, when I read that, it feels forced. It feels mm-hmm. like they would like to talk about that because that something strikes them. But your spirit seems free that you're, it doesn't feel forced. It feels so natural to flow mm-hmm. in and out of these states. And I'm, I'm, I don't know what my question is. I just kind of want to ask how that came about maybe, or where, where this freedom of, I mean, it's clearly you're well-read and you think in deep ways. And mm-hmm. so I'm just kind of curious about that, if, if, as how you got to the place of this such natural ability to flow in out of all these different poets and writers and thinkers and traditions. Gosh, Kevin, I, I really appreciate how you've, you've brought that together. I, no one has ever really said that to me before. So I just, I, I'm so grateful to you for that because that, that has been something that's been really important for me um, because I, I've been a, a truth seeker since I think my twenties. And so I've, I've never wanted to limit where I found something. And by truth, I mean something that's meaningful for my life. And so I've just sought meaning every place. And when I find it, I take it in and I value it. I'm really grateful for it. I mean, I don't think there's any place that I can't find meaning if I'm open to it. And if it, you know, if it, if it fits in kind of my general scheme of things, and sometimes it's really stretching for me. Mm. I mean, out of my Catholic tradition, I still remember I was in my mid twenties and I was in, uh, I was studying, um, I was in graduate school in Houston and, um, we had um, we had a class on scripture, and I'm trying to remember the theologian. We had very very well known in scripture um, for his his teachings. Anyway, I'm sitting sitting there, and he he says to us, "Well, you know, the words in the Gospels aren't the exact text or the exact words of Jesus." And I mean, I sat there and I thought, "I will never meditate with scripture again." I mean, if they're not the exact words, forget it. You know, I have been duped. And, and so, I mean, it really took me quite a while. And then I had to do a lot of reading to realize that, yeah, this guy is right. And 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 so, and that really broke open a door for me. It just, just opened it wide open. And then it was the same time, I think it was the following year, I had a, I took an elective course on world religions, had this wonderful Asian teacher. And 
and the whole thing really was a lot from um, more the Buddhist perspective, but a lot about Asian, the Asian approach to more of a yin, a yin style of spirituality, more reflective, meditative. And that too, I had, I had never been taught that. I mean, it was all about the externals and the rules and laws and liturgical practices. But I thought, I long for this. I long, I long to know more about this more mystical part of, of spirituality. And so that too, uh, that really, that really got me going. And then one day I was in a bookstore um, during those years. I was, I was there five summers. And one of those summers I was in a bookstore and I found this little book of Rabindranath Tagore's poetry. And, you know, he was a poet, first poet laureate of India and his poetry, although he was Hindu, he very much has a relational approach to the divine. And that was another thing. In fact, I've often said, if there was only five books I could take on myself on an island, that would be one of the books I would take because it's just so beautiful. And what he does in, in his poetry is he combines his relational um, his relationship with the divine with the very ordinary parts of life. And that gave me uh, a sense of permission to do that because that's, that's where I, that's where I am. I I'm in the ordinary stuff. I'm not, I'm not in the realm of um, just the intellectual, I guess. I think the intellectual is important, but so, so all of that, uh, that all of that really has helped me. And so then um, in the mid 90s, I wanted to get a degree in transpersonal psychology. So there were only two places for that at the time. Uh, so, and one of them was in Boulder, Colorado. So I, I chose Boulder because I, I love Colorado. And it was at the Buddhist University, uh, Naropa University. So I hadn't planned on this, but I ended up taking a number of courses on, on Buddhist um, Buddhism, especially on meditation. And uh, that again, just really opened me up to um, having a larger look at, at, at the spiritual life. Yeah. Well, and now you've just added another uh, <laughs> greatest hits thing for me because I, my background, I teach at university as an adjunct professor and I do Buddhist Christian dialogue. And ah. so, yeah, so now that's a topic that's come up on this podcast too. So now you're just feeding right in like you, you've you've listened to every one of our past episodes. I also love, again, that answer is so lovely. Thank you so much for that. Um, I love the, the phrasing that you said of that this, uh, this book of poetry by this Indian writer gave you permission and, uh, you know, to be yourself and to open up yourself. And I, I think that's striking. Um, I, I'm thinking about myself. Would I use that language about something that's outside of my own comfort zone? That is that something I don't identify with. You know, if I have a different culture or a different background, would I use the language of Ooh, this this stranger, somebody that might be outside of my comfort zone, has given me permission to be myself? Uh. Um, that's the beautiful language you just used for me. It's, it's a uh, glorious. So thank you for that. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. You know, something you said, Kevin, if I just can respond to that, um, that I, I want, always want to be very careful of, and that is respecting other religious traditions. 
when I was in Boulder, another course I took was from a, a Native American, uh, a Yaqui Indian um, Eagle Cruise. And throughout that whole course, he spoke about how people were taking the Native spiritualities and using them and abusing them and charging large amounts of money for them. And you know, he, and he, and so what he said to us, you know, is yes, you can incorporate from our traditions, but do it in a way that's respectful and, and, and be mindful of, of what you're doing and not just claim it for your own or change it in such a way that it distorts, you know, what the original meaning of that is. And I, I've really tried to do that. I've tried to be uh, very conscious of that. And when I've given retreats, I mean, even something so simple as using the greeting namaste, you know, I greet, I greet the divine in you. And one day I was doing that and a woman corrected me on it, which I was at the time shocked, but grateful later. But she said, uh, that's not really the correct meaning in, in Hinduism. She said, I lived in India for a number of years. And she said, it's more than just I greet the sacred or the holy one in you. It's I greet the whole person in you. I greet, I greet you with your strengths and your weaknesses. I greet you as you are. I greet you without judgment. And that was so powerful for me. And I thought, you know, there's an example where I was taking something from a tradition and just bringing it back into my Christianity, so to speak, and and qualifying it you know this is the holy here is the holy one so yeah so that's that's spectacular this sense of gentleness of um just freedom to go and to listen and to learn and to be humble and to receive from the other and and then not to do violence to that tradition or to the people who shared it with you and to and to mirror back that gentleness is just so yeah again thank you it's wonderful you're welcome. Thanks. I just wanted to pick up on the idea of how the interfaith encounter can help us to be more truly ourselves. Mm. That that certainly has just been my experience. So I, 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 it's really a comment more than a question. It's mm. just acknowledging, you know, the beauty of that, that in that kind of place of hospitality, where we seek to receive the other as they are, and seek to be received as we are. Mm -hmm. And that there's not about, you know, having to somehow censor ourselves or edit ourselves, you know. Um, and this is something I've learned from my friends who do not share my Christian faith. Yeah. Uh, Muslim friends, Jewish friends, uh, Buddhist friends, people who really want to be my friend, accept me, you know, as the Catholic Christian that I am, warts and all, but want to be fully Buddhist or fully Muslim. Mm -hmm. And that there is this spaciousness where neither one of us is in any way compromising the integrity of our faith. And yet we, we greet one another and we receive one another. And that's kind of what I was hearing from you. And I just wanted to say, yay, you know, I just think that's, that's a beautiful place. That's all. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for that. You know, and I, what I want to say, especially for people who might listen to this podcast, is that that's been a journey for me. That just didn't happen because when I grew up in my in my youth, if you weren't Catholic, you just weren't you didn't have it. You know, I mean, we, we couldn't go to Protestant services. And if you went to a, 
a public school, you just were not quite as good as those of us who went to a Catholic school. And, and that slowly began to change for me because I went to a state uh, university for college and I made some good friends who were Protestant. And that began, but I'll tell you what was really hard for me was when I started writing because I wanted to write about the connection between spirituality and nature. And I remember when I was in grade school, what a shock it was to, I mean, I heard, at least this is what I heard, uh, I think it was what was taught, is that if you really saw God through nature, within nature, that this was kind of a pagan thing. And, and that God was really in your liturgy and your spirituality, but, you know, don't mess around with nature because, you, you know, that's, that's going to get you in trouble. And, and so my first book was Fresh Bread, and I really wanted to write about nature because that's where I was finding the divine and the connections. And it wasn't, I mean, and it's not to downplay my, my, my Catholicism and sacraments and all that, but honestly, that's not where I was experiencing the deeper sense of, of the holy. So it was with great trepidation that I, I had that book published. And when I found out that people were writing to me and they were saying, I get it, that's, that's, that's where it is for me. Uh, wow, you know, that it, it, just, it just really helped me. It gave me courage, I guess is what I would say. It gave me courage to, to trust the way that the spirit was moving in my life. And also I think to respect the way other people, some people do find it very much in more, um, more of the organized uh, worship areas of church and that's if that's their way that's okay but it it just doesn't fit for me very well yeah one thing I, I love about this conversation is the way it for me is hearkening me back to our earlier conversations on silence and stillness that by recognizing and acknowledging this infinite mysterious spaciousness in ourselves and in another being we're in touch with that moment where you saw the moon sitting on the earth. We're in touch with, you know, the love of winter because of the darkness. We're in touch with these, these other deep mysterious moments of our lives that in turn connect us to ourselves and in turn connect us to our fellow human and, and creation. And one of the things you write about in your book is the difference between silence and stillness. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that, that I gather from your writing, you write that silence relates to the external environment, an absence of sound or lessening of it, while stillness has to do with our internal environment. And I wonder, do you think it's possible to have those, that depth of sacred encounter without the stillness aspect also? Or do you think both are necessary in your own experience? Do you think both are necessary in order to really sink into the to that infinite spaciousness um that infinite mystery yeah i i think that silence i silence leads to stillness you know silence to me is an external activity and depending how i how intentional or how i approach that external silence it can move me to stillness stillness to me is is a place and it can be internal, but stillness could be external, but stillness is, you know, my favorite time of day is dusk. 
And, and I've always liked dusk since living on the farm because at dusk, everything settles down. You can have a wild windy day, but when sunset comes, the wind settles, the bird cheeps, they cheep for a while and then they head to their nest and then darkness slowly comes and everything gets quiet and still. You know, so you can have a stillness. It's a different than silence. It's a stillness because to me, stillness is a resonance. It's a resonance of peace and equanimity. In silence, you can still be very restless. You can, you know, silence, a person can fight against silence. You know, there's there are people that are highly uncomfortable with any kind of silence. So silence does not always lead to stillness, but I think it's how we are within silence that that can can lead us into that place where we're just comfortable being you know we're just we're okay with it it's like nothing needs to happen i can, i can just be present here yeah so i i don't know if that that really answers it but i, I guess i give an example of my meditation oh dear <laughs> but i I can have silence, although I never have complete silence. I just have learned to use it as white noise. I live pretty close to a freeway. So I always have that hum of, of the traffic pretty much most of the time. But I can, ha I can have silence in my room in, this, in the, my prayer space. But I don't have stillness a lot of time because when <laughs> I enter into that silence, I hear all these rumblings in my mind and all this emotional stuff that's going on. And, and um you know, it takes quite a while to come to a place of just letting that be and, and coming into stillness. So, um, yeah, there's a, there's a big difference for me in that. So, This conversation on Encountering Silence will continue after a 30-second break of silence. Take a moment and breathe with us. And I love the way in which you talk about it for me just really reiterates kind of this, this ambiguity alongside this knowing one of those things that we can't, we can't put words to, but when we've encountered it, we can, you know, what you're saying would resonates deeply with me. Mm -hmm. Um, yet there's not necessarily, necessarily clear words to, um, mm -hmm. yeah, to define my own encounters with it, yeah. which it keeps it keeps it um I think in that infinite mystery and in that infinite spaciousness too um where there's just continual freedom you know what, what triggered for me just when you were saying that Cassidy is that I've been really excited this has been a few years going on now that there are some schools that are actually when the children come in in the morning they they have 15 minutes of complete silence and they don't ask anything of, of those children. They don't have to write anything. They don't have to do anything. And, and when they've interviewed these children, maybe you've read or heard, you know, seen some of the videos, but what the children say is that it quiets them. And I think they move to a kind of stillness that they can't, they can't put words on either. 
and I remember one, one girl about 10 said, I don't feel as angry anymore, mm. you know, because I think she's, it gives them time maybe to just let it settle down in them. And um, even if they're not thinking about it, but I think just that um, electromagnetic field, uh, you know, this, that spaciousness of the silence, it, it allows those children to be, and they never have silence. I mean, who has silence in our external world anymore? I think what a gift to give those children. I just wish it could happen everywhere, you know, but, but at least I know someplace it's happening. So it's a good thing. That's mm. beautiful. And I'm just struck, Cassidy quoted your book and this discussion about stillness and silence. And so I, I want to come to the book. I, I thinking back about you said before that books have a mind of their own, that they 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 think their own. You start one way and then all of a sudden they lead you down this other way. I'm kind of curious, what is this book, your most recent book, Return of the Root? What is what is it thinking? What it, what is your hope that it offers us? What why why this book? What what were you hoping for? I, I think, uh, thank you, Kevin. I, I think with every book I've written, almost every book I've written, that I really want to be a catalyst for people to, to connect their inner world, their outer world with their inner world. And my hope in, that, in this particular book, because I deliberately kept the essay short, uh, people don't want to read long chapters anymore. I tried to put some poetry in there that might uh, emphasize the theme of, of the of the month of the year. Um, the book is in the in the twelve months, and each of those essays uh, I had sent out as a new monthly newsletter. You know, I, I I don't do a daily blog. I just do I I can barely manage once a month for a newsletter, <laughs> but I, I I sent that out online uh, anyway. But. Uh, every one of those is it comes out of something I've experienced, whether it's something I read, something someone said to me, an event, an experience, something on my walk. Um, but I want, without saying it specifically, to say, this is this is where you find um, your connection to the divine. It's it's in your life right now, and I'm also hoping that uh, they will pause you know, and, or they'll take it into their day and it'll take them into the deeper self, you know, with some silence, even silence, just when they're reading it, uh, or spending a little time with it. So that's, that's all my hope has always been to help people find meaning in their life. You know, when I was in my mid twenties, I read Victor Frankl's book, A Man's Search for Meaning. That book, I, I, I can't tell you how much that book has helped me mainly because here this man is um, in a concentration camp where people are being taken away and being, you know, murdered and, and how he was able to find meaning in the midst of that. And when he says, you know, meaning is what kept him alive. And I thought, that's, that's what I want to do wherever I am. And however I am, I, I want to find meaning and meaning inspires me, encourages me, gives me hope. And that's what I long for the people of our world. I just long for them to find direction for their lives that brings them into a, a sense of, of meaning and peacefulness for themselves. And uh, 
So that's, yeah, that's basically, I guess, that's, that's what I hope for that book. And of course, as an author, I hope it sells. <laughs> fair enough. Oh, yeah. There we are. Fair, writer. fair point. Fair <laughs> point. Well, a book that sells is a book that reaches its audience. So, I know. It's you know. very true. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Joyce, you're, you're lead, leading me to maybe what is an obvious question. Maybe you've already answered this question, but, um, but I'll just throw it out there. What do you think is the meaning of silence and stillness? If, oh. if you were, you know, like, a, a, like if a child came up to you and said, yeah. you know, why do you spend so much time in silence? What do you think you would say? Wow, that would be a great question for a child to ask me. I think I would say, if it were a child that were asking me, I would say, you know, there's something inside of me that's my truest, truest person, my truest Joyce. And when I, when I am quiet, I can find that, that part of me that I can say, I really know her, I know who she is. And so that's part of it. And the other part of silence, I would say to a child is, when I find that place, I'm really happy. You know, that, that brings me a lot, lots of joy. And so I try to go there. I try to have that when I can, you know, and then I would talk about the ways that I, I'm quiet, you know, and, and could be quiet. You know, I have two wonderful cousins in the city and they both have small children. And one of them, uh, my cousin Katie, just the other day asked me, she has a daughter, Thea, who's, uh, she'll be six pretty soon. And we were talking about uh, my walks every day and I just love this. Katie said to me, would you ever, would you ever be willing to teach Thea how to be with nature and give her some nature lessons? And I said, oh, I would love that. You know, I can come over every week and we can sit in the grass and talk about a blade of grass and how that blade of grass experiences life. And, and we would be quiet together. You know, we would be quiet and just listen to the grass. You know, we would listen to the tree. And that's really what I, I think it is for adults. You know, I, I have led so many retreats in my years of ministry. And I'll tell you, and I've talked to other retreat leaders, it gets harder and harder for people to have real quiet on a retreat. You have to practically be an ogre and say, put your phones, leave your phones in the room. Or, you know, if you have your phone with you, please do not look something up while I'm talking. I mean, you know, I mean, it's just like, it's just impossible, like almost for people to, to just have that quiet time. And so used to be, I could give people an hour, you know, you can go away. I'll give you some lead in questions. And now it's like, wow, 15 minutes, people are roaming around, they're restless, they're checking, you know? And so I, you know, I, I think, Silence to me is really about pausing and listening. Pausing and listening. That's what I would say silence is, pausing and listening. Yeah. So Joyce, speaking of, of being this, uh, not just retreat leader, but also, you know, nature guide and, and these kinds of things, I wonder if this might be a time where you uh, would be willing to share a, a poem or a prayer with us to kind of deepen us in, in the moment of really what you just shared about silence being pausing and listening. Yeah, I, one of the, my books I have here is my book, The Cosmic Dance. And I, I was really nervous about writing and, and having this book published because I, I didn't know if it was quote, spiritual enough for people. 
you know, out of my, my background. And I absolutely, this is my most favorite book. I love this book because it's my truest self in it. And it's really about silence and being with nature and finding the divine in the midst of it. Um, one of the poems I have in here, which is really about silence, uh, that's why I kind of pulled it out. It's called A Slip of Rain. I can tell you exactly where I was sitting at the time when I experienced this and the quiet I had, but this is what I wrote. A slip of rain, a slip of rain, unexpected, just enough to tickle the leaves and encourage the flowers to stick out their tongues, nothing more. Thirsty blades of grass barely feel the feathered moisture, but my ears have heard the whispering feet of raindrops and my heart has felt the soft dance of their gauzy landing. I pause for a brief time from my ballyhoo busyness and enter the silvery silence. So deeply enticed is my parched soul that I sit entranced, unable to do anything but listen. I wonder if I'll ever get back to my endless ego endeavors. I wonder if it matters. So that's a slip of rain. That's beautiful. Thank you. I, I would love to hear the, the moment that you recall. You said you recall the moment when you wrote that. Yeah, I was sitting at retreat for a small, just a small little house that a Benedictine friend of mine, their community had for their going away times of solitude. And I was using it that day. And I had my plans to do all this work I was going to write that day, you know, and, and it began raining just this very soft rain and had been extremely dry there. Uh, just everything was pretty much brown. And I remember just being drawn into that rain. I write best of all on rainy days. I love rainy days, just soft rainy days, not wild windy rain days, but soft rainy days. And so I, I just sat there and I sat there for a long time. And in that silence, I just kind of became the earth. And I thought, what must it be like to have this soft, gentle rain just coming into, into oneself after all that dryness? And, that, and then, you know, as so I sat there for about an hour, so it was very quiet rain and then it stopped. And then I just jotted down, you know, some of my thoughts about that, but that, that's, that's how that happened. See, I, I think we have to be intentional about things. I just, I, I'm more and more, as I get older, I feel strongly about this intentionality. Things just don't always just happen, but I have to put myself in some place or I have to pay a price to deliberately go away or to set aside something or um, focus it's, I have to be intentional about focusing and maybe and that probably is really a part of silence you have to be intentional about silence to focus and have something happen within the silence so yeah that's interesting because now we've come full circle I asked a while at the beginning about this idea of your sense of freedom and and now there's a sense of discipline and 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 rigor and I, I i love that dialectic that that because clearly for that freedom to happen there has to be a a sense of some ordered way but again the way you just described it is not an order that is i don't know what word i want to use 
violent. It's not a, it's not a violent order. It's not a controlling order. It's not a, a voice that crushes. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a, it's a whisper of invitation. And, mm-hmm. and, and so I'm, I'm just struck because you gave this that lovely poem again greatest hits you're hitting them all poetry is a huge thing on this podcast we absolutely adore it the three of us i'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on like why poetry i'd like to hear why for you poetry we we've talked about it with different people but why poetry and is it connected with prayer is it something are they the same are they different like what is that because that's the way your book reads is there's some poems there's some prayers sometimes they blend sometimes they seem distinct i'm kind of curious about that space for you and poetry and why that's important for you thank you for your response to my last comment kemp and i really i appreciate that i actually began writing poetry before i ever wrote prose and that was in my 20s um i i like poetry because i can condense and condense and condense until it's just right there you don't have to read lots and lots of words. So I love anyone's poetry for that, for that reason. And poetry to me points a direction. It, uh, it points towards something. Uh, maybe it's just my own, someone else gets another direction from a poem, but it points to a direction. And so I see poetry and prayer I, 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 Rilke's poetry, I can read almost any of Rilke's poetry and it'll draw me into prayer right away. I think, I think poetry is a catalyst for prayer. Mm. Poetry is about words. And for me, prayer is more about wordlessness. Uh, I write a lot of prayers for other people, but for myself, my most core or most comfortable prayer is wordless prayer. And so a poem will lead me into that space of, of just savoring. I, I thought about that. A poem is a way to bring me into savoring a relationship with the divine, you know? And so I, I, I really, I, I hardly a day goes by that I don't read somebody's poetry. You know, I just, it nourishes my life. I know a lot of people aren't comfortable with poetry, and, and so I, and sometimes I say, I just sneak poems into my books of prose, <laughs> hoping that, you know, this poetry will speak to a person that's like, no, poetry isn't for me. Uh, but, but I personally really, really value poetry for that reason. Um, poetry to me is words and, and prayer is wordlessness, but they, they intertwine one another, I think. And out of prayer, again, can come another poem. So, you know, it's... Uh, it kind of all, all fits together that way. So, yeah, that's lovely. Thank you for that. Yeah, and I, I, um, I really appreciate that sense there for me. Um, I'm gonna have to sit with that. The idea of words and then wordless, and and the way you've lined them up with prayer and poetry. Yeah, there's something very striking that I need to, I think, sit with. Kevin, as you say that, I think maybe poetry leads me into relationship. Maybe I would say it that way, you know, that, yeah. That's provocative. I'm reminded of how many of the mystics were or are poets. 
um, John of the Cross, Thomas Merton, and and the ones who maybe wrote prose, but poetic prose, like like Julian of Norwich or Teresa of Avila. Again and again and again, it seems like poetry is the language of the mystics. So your your thoughts just are, I think, so resonant with what our our greatest spiritual teachers have given us. So thank you. Well, and I love it that all three of you are embracing poetry and silence, all this, all the stuff of my heart. <laughs> it's great to have, isn't it wonderful to have spiritual kinship? You know, I've, I've just met you today, but I think, oh, I'm going to leave this conversation. I'm going to feel restored and renewed and re-energized, really. It's, it's wonderful. So thank you for that. Thank you. This this has been a just a lovely reflection on the beauty and the gift of silence and stillness. But there is, uh, you know, part of the conversation that our podcast has had in the, you know, now over three years, over four years, I think that we've been together, has been how silence is not always a gift. How the, some people experience, or and especially some groups of people experience being silenced. Mm-hmm. Or, or have a, a sense of silence as being equated with punishment or with oppression, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So I'm just curious, you know, in your own journey, what maybe has been your experience of kind of the shadow side of silence, or how, you know, those of us who are committed to a contemplative kind of stance, how we can, out of that, be committed to justice and to, you know, to what is best for all people, especially those who maybe lack a social privilege in our culture? You know, that I really appreciate that, that question, because when I, when I, I entered my community right at the time of Vatican II changes, and they, they were still practicing the old, old practices. And one of them was enforced silence, that you absolutely could not speak until it the leadership gave you permission to speak until the rules said you could speak. And I found that extremely difficult. I love silence, but I did not find that helpful. It was very dominating. And in our Boundless Compassion program, one of the seeds of compassion we teach is nonviolence. And I have written about silence as being violent. To not speak to another person is, is, is treating that person as an object. And to not allow a person to speak is domination over. And I think of, uh, in my Roman Catholic tradition, I think that the most pain, I've never wanted to be ordained, but the most painful thing for me is not allowing people to talk about women's ordination. I, I think that's just so wrong. And it's so dominating. And so, well, there's just a lot I could say about that. And more recently here in, in Iowa, and I know it's happening in other states too, this conversation in the legislature about punishing teachers who will not be silent about our history of slavery or about sexual orientation or any of those related kinds of controversial issues. And to silence a teacher, I think is, I mean, to me, that's frightening uh, to silence a teacher. And so, yes, I, there's a, there is always a shadow side uh, to silence. And, and I think another piece of it, personally, I would say for myself that I always wanna keep an eye on. And that is, is my silence leading me to self-orientation 
or other orientation. You know, I can be very, it, it can, I can focus so much on myself that I'm not really a participating person in, in the larger pieces of life that need my attention and my, and my, my concern. Um, but yeah, I, and I, I'm really glad you asked that question because I think we always, I always need to be aware of the shadow side of whatever it is because it's there. I, I believe it truly. And so what do we do about that, that shadow side? Well, psychology would tell us is that first of all, we say that it's there, we acknowledge it, and then we have a choice of what we want to do about that. And, you know, we can have a shadow take over our life or we can say to the shadow, I know you're there, but you will not have you do not have permission to take over my life or to influence my life. And, and so that's how I think about silence and um, the negative part of silence and, or the negative probably isn't a good word for that, but the, um, the difficulty of, of a silence that is harmful. Yeah, harmful silence, I would say, rather than negative, harmful silence, yeah. Joyce, that, that makes me think of what you said earlier about the intentionality of silence, the necessary intentionality yeah. that it's not an aimlessness and it's not an evasion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's not domination over. I, I just see today, there's a lot of that. And I think about people on the margins and how people that aren't on the margins consider themselves so much better. Some people consider themselves better than uh, why would people on the margins be given a voice about anything or be given the uh, amount of attention they should? Why should we listen to them? Do they really, we know what's good for them. That's mm. the thing that I think comes to, we know what's good for them. And and so, um, yeah, what's the intention? That's good, Cassidy. I, I like that. Keeping the purpose. What is the purpose of this silence that I am uh, entering or that I'm I'm desiring? I appreciate your note on, on domination. I think it's bell hooks that writes where there's domination, there can't be love. That's right. Yeah. I'm also interested too about this. It seems to connect with your question, um, your answer to the question from Carl about how you would talk about silence with a child and the way you labeled it there was, Hey, there's a place inside of me where the fullest sense of me, the fullest sense of Joyce comes and it seems to me that this, again, I struggle too with how do you want to talk about the shadow side, this this dominating part of silence. And I'm wondering in this conversation, what we're having here is a sense of there's a silence that's incomplete and very limited, uh, doesn't allow all the voices to speak and has a dominating, controlling, violent attempt. And then there's this gentle invitation of stillness that you have invited us and walked us around with that's looking has a freedom that can listen to all the voices, listen to all the voices with love as mm -hmm. opposed to trying to control all the voices. And I wonder if maybe the way I'd like to think about it today is to think about the fullness of silence and the limited, the, like the two kinds of, if there's two kinds <laughs> not even sure I want to do that, but if if we're going to talk about the distinctions here, that there's a limited silence and then there's this full silence, and yeah. and can we be invited into the full and notice the limited? Oh, I really really like that. I that that is really helpful for me, Kevin. That incomplete 
silence and how do we have the fullness of it? I, I really like that a lot, much better than the than the terms of negative or even harmful. I think I, it just it just gives it another whole dimension to it. So thank you for that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't really want to take credit for just saying back your own word, mirroring your words that you said to us. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think that you are. You're using some new, new words and they're, they're ones that I'm really grateful to receive. So, so thank you. I think sometimes wisdom or insight emerges out of the conversation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so yay, yay, the conversation. Thank you both for reflecting together. And that is the beauty of dialogue, isn't it? You know, that, and because, you know, I remember Carl Rahner long ago, I read a, a quote of his and, or something in one of his books. And he said, religious education isn't pouring things into someone, it's drawing them forth. And, and I think that's what dialogue and conversation does. It draws forth what's there in us that maybe we haven't worded before. And that's what I, that's what I heard from you, Kevin, when you were just, when you were saying that is, oh, it's drawing forth, you know another way to, to look at that. And that's one of my, that's one of my joys about um, being in dialogue with, with people when that happens. So it's, it's uh, you say the books have a mind of their own, but the dialogue has a mind of its own, mm-hmm. you know, because I really, honestly, I, I thank you for the kind words, but it feels a little weird for me to take any kind of credit for those words that, because it feels like all I was doing was reflecting back and you said I wasn't. And so it, it's mm-hmm. it's its own living thing, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it it walked into its own space on its own. Mm. Oh, I like that. Walked into its own space. That's good. <laughs> Maybe I use that in a poem. <laughs> and again, unintentionally, just <laughs> it's it's collaboration with the spirit. And there all you of go. Us <laughs> listening and being guided, and okay. yeah, connecting and yeah, Joyce. <laughs> One one thing we do love to ask, which is a, a little off topic at this point, but maybe this would be a good good final question, is we love asking if you have a particular silence hero. So mm-hmm. a person, you know, in fact, some people have, have named nature um, or, you know, maybe a particular tree or a person living or, or dead who for you has embodied the wisdom and the meaning of silence. Uh, you know that I can answer that quickly because w- the person I learned from, I've often said, my spiritual mentor in my early years was Thomas Merton, and it, not just his teachings, but I so resonate with Merton's constant desire for solitude and silence, and how he longed to have that hermitage. And um, yeah, and so I think the first his first book I read was New Seeds of Contemplation, and I. I could really resonate with that and encouraged me. And uh, today too, I can go back to Merton anytime and say, oh, yep, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, he, he, was, he was pretty marvelous though, I think. And I, I loved his honesty too. I think he, I would say that too. He's given me courage to be honest and vulnerable as a writer. Yeah, mm-hmm. besides the silence dimension of it, so. Yeah. Thank you so much for your presence and your words. This has been a joy. Oh, thank you. And I will say namaste to each of you in the fullness of the tradition. <laughs> thank you. Namaste. I've, it's been my joy. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and 
yeah, your willingness to engage in organic conversation. This just felt really comfortable and really enlightening and yeah, beautiful. It did feel like collaboration with spirit for me. So thank you. Wonderful. Thank you all. Yeah. Thank you. We are Encountering Silence. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, KevinMichaelJohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is CarlMcCollman.com. Please visit the podcast website at EncounteringSilence.com. There you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit Patreon.com slash EncounteringSilence. This way you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world.